Well, uh, good morning, and um, thank you uh, to Jordan for leading us again through singing. Uh, before we begin looking into God's Word today, uh, before we begin that, I'm going to just give a few minutes for folks to to walk in, <clears throat> to walk in, to you know log in <laughs> for this uh, for this session, and uh, I do have a couple of um, announcements to make uh, as well. Um, uh, first of all, uh, one exciting thing. Uh, as we get started, is uh, that we really need to praise God for the safe arrival of Pastor Jared's and Carrie's brand new, beautiful baby, Lily Faith Poulton. Uh, it was a pretty exciting night for them last night as they got to the hospital at 7.56 and the baby came at 8.06. <laughs> Lily was just done. And ready to step out into the world or crawl out into the world or be pulled out into the world uh, and we are so grateful for that and uh, and uh, I Poltons I have no idea if you're watching or if you're tied up with baby stuff or whatever but uh, if you are uh, your church family praises God uh, with you guys and we look forward to meeting your precious daughter uh, before too long now I don't have any of the uh, the standard baby stats to give you like weight and length uh, but there are pictures online, and so if you are friends with the Poltons on Facebook, uh, I want to encourage you to uh, to check those out. Uh, again, if you're just uh, logging in, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, we'll begin uh, the preaching of the Word in just a moment, uh, and, and I hope that this is going to be uh, the final time that I'll be preaching from my office, God willing. I mean, we, we never know what God's going to do, but... Uh, but uh, my aim is that this would be uh, be the final time. Um, I had originally aimed for us to resume corporate worship in the church building today, uh, but the elders and deacons had some more details to work out in regards to just the specifics of what life would uh, initially look like here once we regathered. Uh, as some of you may recall, last Sunday I, I had given a verbal announcement of, uh, of some guidelines that we'd be seeking to follow upon reopening the building, things that had to do with social distancing and, and so on. And, and, and after I gave that announcement, I realized that they were too, that there's a, what I said was maybe a little too open-ended. Uh, it was too general, uh, too left open to personal interpretation that might cause some confusion when we return. So the deacons and I had a great meeting yesterday to tighten some things up and, and get some, some more specificity down. And we've come up with a plan that, that balances the concerns uh, of um, just being submissive to our governing authorities and what they're asking us to do and our, and our public health officials, and, and also at the same time considering the interests and concerns of, of members of the congregation, while also helping us to strive <clears throat> to obey Hebrews 10, which urges us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So uh, in the next couple of days, um, we'll get out a written statement to the church regarding expectations and guidelines for when God willing we resume corporate worship next Sunday so uh, be on the lookout for that uh, in the meantime please take your Bibles and turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 5 uh, Ephesians chapter 5 so I had suddenly unexpectedly found myself laying flat on my back on a concrete floor during a church service, having felt as if I had just been knocked over by a powerful, invisible force. Now, right before that, I had been standing and praying with, with my eyes closed, and the next moment, I'm on the ground. Now, someone else who had been watching the whole scene go down said that no one had touched me, and yet I had felt pushed backwards, and therefore, uh, according to the leaders of, of the church I was at at the time, I just believed that in that moment I was experiencing a filling of the Holy Spirit. And I thought I was just so overwhelmed by the Spirit that I just completely lost control of my body and I collapsed. Now, that experience, <clears throat> which happened to me as a young, uh, impressionable, 20-year-old uh, new convert, was so, uh, certainly an emotionally charged experience. And it was a memorable experience. And it was a euphoric experience. And on top of that, it had nothing to do with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, my experience is, is pretty tame uh, compared to what goes on in many churches. Uh, people hysterically laughing, 
uh, people barking like dogs and roaring like lions and, and people becoming paralyzed for long periods of time. All of these sorts of phenomena and more are commonly attributed to the Holy Spirit. And I would argue that churches like that are in error. Uh, whether it be uh, peer pressure or, or people who may mean well, but just getting worked up into, into hyper-emotionalistic ecstatic frenzies that open themselves up to all kinds of strange activities or, or the power of suggestion. There could be many things going on, but as I see the ministry of the Holy Spirit explained in the New Testament, I don't see any of that kind of thing. But what, what is equally erroneous is when churches overcorrect and, uh, and if not consciously, then subconsciously uh, pull back from the Spirit and, and minimize the importance of the Spirit and even ignore the Holy Spirit. That is equally problematic. Because without the Spirit, you'll actually find it impossible to live the Christian life. And, and we as a church will find it impossible to be the kind of church that the Lord wants us to be. We tend to think of churches that are spirit-filled, and then we think of churches that are not, as if that's an option. Uh, that there are spirit-filled churches that, that they're charismatic, and, and maybe they're a little bit more mystical, and maybe a little bit more interesting. And then you've got non-spirit churches that are, are more plain vanilla. But that's a false distinction, because God's plan for every church is to be spirit-filled which means it's God's plan for every Christian to be spirit-filled. As we continue our sermon series through the book of Ephesians called Identity Matters, we've seen that becoming a Christian isn't just a little add-on to your life. Yeah, I'll throw in a little bit of Jesus to supplement things a bit, kind of like a vitamin. No, no, no. Christianity is actually exchanging an old way of life for something that is completely different. Now, earlier in chapter 5, uh, Paul says that, before you were Christians, you were darkness. Not, th not just that you were in darkness, but that you were darkness. That's a pretty powerful uh, description. Now, what does that mean? It means that you used to be, as chapter 2 explained, a slave to the devil uh, in hostile rebellion against God, um, uh, just exalting your desires above what God wants. Uh, on the road to justly receiving God's wrath and hell as punishment for your sins, you just didn't do evil things, you were evil. You were darkness. That's the hard, sobering truth for everyone outside of Christ. But in becoming a Christian, you have put off the old self, as Paul writes in chapter 4, and you're putting on the new self, or the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You were a child of wrath. Now you are a child of God. And so chapter 5 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. You are now to look like God because Ephesians 5.8 says at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. Which means a whole lot of things, including turning away from immorality and crude talking and covetousness and self-centeredness and, and instead walking in love and purity and holiness and God-centeredness, uh, letting your words and your walk shine, piercing the darkness, exposing that which is evil with the hopeful expectation that even though some will shrink back from the light, others will come to the light and be saved. Essentially, Paul has been telling you how to live according to your new identity. And out of all the practical instructions Paul has been giving us, we're coming now to one that I dare say is the most important. Because without this, you actually won't be able to successfully do anything that the book of Ephesians is calling you to do. It's crucial that uh, chapter 5, verse 18 becomes a reality in your life where Paul urges you to be filled with the Spirit. And by that, he's not telling you to experience sensationalistic manifestations or fall uncontrollably, uh, uncontrollably on the floor or just lose it in hysterical la uh, laughter. Instead, he wants you to experience something that on the surface seems a lot more ordinary, but in reality is so much better and much more beautiful. And this is very timely, especially as we begin to move closer to reopening the church building and getting back together in, in corporate worship. When Paul talks about being filled in the Spirit, uh, he, that is a, he, he is, um, in, in the original language there, he, he's thinking plural. He's using, he's using plural verbs. You all be filled with the Spirit. This is, this is not a personal thing. This is a corporate thing. 
And, and so as we think about getting back uh, together for corporate worship soon, um, I, I want us to really uh, be thinking about this text today. If we as a church family can be more committed to being filled with the Holy Spirit, I guarantee you that's going to make our congregation stronger and healthier and more loving and more unified and a better witness to the world than ever before. So let's read the text together. We're in Ephesians 5, and we are starting at verse 18, and we'll read on down through verse 21. Thus says the Lord, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking you for your hand of blessing and your favor this morning. It's been uh, a rough few days of sermon preparation. Uh, really, the past uh, few weeks have, have been challenging going through the, the texts, and, and yet I'm so grateful that the Word of God is not limited uh, by my limitations. Uh, the Word of God is not bound uh, by me. And so, Father, I, I pray that uh, you would come and you would bless and that, that you would help, and, and, and Holy Spirit, that you would come and and, and give aid and assistance as I explain the Word of God. And, and, and I pray that, that you would uh, help the listeners uh, who have tuned in this morning to, to hear the Word of God and that the Spirit would uh, illuminate uh, their, their minds so that they might understand uh, the Word that is, is being preached. And, and Holy Spirit, I pray that, that you would uh, fill us this morning as we engage with your word and and seek to cherish it and to believe it and to obey it in jesus name amen well as paul here is talking about being filled with the spirit we've got to recognize that this actually is old testament language uh, throughout the old testament we encounter this idea of god filling something with his manifest presence with his glory most prominently we see this in relationship to his dwelling place which uh, would have been the tabernacle first and then later on the temple. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 8, after the temple in Jerusalem had been constructed, we're told that the glory of the Lord, the manifest presence of God, filled the temple. In fact, the, the filling was so overwhelming and so powerful that the priest couldn't go in. Now, of course, God can't be contained in a building, right? In fact, Solomon himself acknowledges this in that same chapter in, in 1 Kings 8 uh, in his prayer. Uh, he says, Behold, heaven and the, uh, and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So, on the one hand, God is everywhere. He cannot be contained. But on the other hand, it pleased God for his presence and glory to be made manifest in a special way in the temple. It was to be the center of worship. It was to be the place where God would be most clearly displayed and manifested. It was to serve uh, as a light and a witness to the surrounding nations so that others might say, God is there. God is with those people. And, and, and others who did not know God would come and see and learn about the Lord. Uh, kind of like what the, the, the Queen of Sheba does a, a few chapters later uh, in 1 in Kings, uh, where she, she visits Solomon, she hears about the things that the Lord uh, is doing. Now, in addition to this idea of the glory of the Lord filling his special dwelling place, the temple, we also discover in the Old Testament that God is not content with his manifest presence being relegated to just one location. Indeed, in the book of Numbers, on the heels of the construction of the tabernacle, it's interesting, God reveals that his plans are much bigger uh, than his glory just being relegated to the tabernacle or the temple. He says in Numbers 14, 21, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Or I think about Habakkuk uh, chapter 2, verse 14, that prophesies that the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. So that's the end game. God well in advance tips his hand and he tells us where all of this is headed. One building in Jerusalem is insufficient. One tiny strip of real estate in the Middle East is insufficient. God is thinking much bigger than that. He is thinking global. And so it's against this Old Testament backdrop that Paul's writing Ephesians. 
where he writes at the end of chapter 2 that the church is the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, Paul writes, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in the New Testament, the temple is no longer a physical building, but a people. Uh, the church is now God's temple. As the, as the manifest presence and glory of God filled the physical temple in Jerusalem under the Old Covenant, now under the New Covenant, the presence and glory of the Spirit of the Lord is to fill the new temple, which is the church. And so the church now is to be the entity that people see and, 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 and say in response to that, God is there. God is among them. Uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 123 says that the church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In chapter 3, verse 19, Paul prays that the church would be filled with the fullness of God. And so as the church advances in the world, fulfilling the Great Commission, and as people of every tribe and tongue come to know the Lord through the witness of the church, guess what happens? The whole earth is being filled with his glory as the temple of God expands to the ends of the earth. And so it's good to have that big picture in mind when we come to Ephesians 5.18 where Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit. And there are three main areas of focus in our text today in regards to Spirit filling. It's, 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 I've, I've broken it down pretty simple. <laughs> uh, what not to do, what to do, and the results of doing what you're supposed to do. Uh, and, and so first, what not to do. Uh, do not get drunk with wine. Uh, verse 18, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, drunkenness has been a problem since the early days of human history. Uh, and in the first century Ephesus, in first century Ephesus, uh, drunkenness often had very specific religious connotations, as one of the major gods was Dionysus, or uh, Bacchus was his Roman name. And Bacchus was the god of wine. And it was believed that through the worship of Bacchus, one could achieve a mystical divine state of consciousness. And, and you know how they reached that divine state of consciousness, that altered state of consciousness? Uh, well, the worship of, of Bacchus would consist of wild music, frenetic dancing, working oneself up into an emotionally ecstatic state, and, of course, alcoholic intoxication would be part of this uh, religious experience, of this worship. Indeed, it is from the, the name Bacchus that we get Bacchanalia, which was the Roman festival that included wild parties and perverted orgies and massive intoxication. And some of these Ephesian converts who are hearing this letter from Paul read to them for the first time, they would have been former worshipers of Bacchus. Now, while no one today is drinking in excess to worship Bacchus, there are nevertheless many who are partaking of alcohol to get themselves into an altered state of consciousness, uh, to help them to feel better, to forget their troubles, to lower their inhibitions so that they might indulge in sin in an attempt to escape some sort of pain that they're dealing with. And, and folks, that's no less a form of worship than, than ancient Bacchanalian rituals. Because you're seeking joy and satisfaction through something that in the end is empty and leaves you in a worse state than you were before. And so in that sense, the spirit of Bacchus still rules in America. Uh, of course, it's not uh, drinking per se that the Bible condemns, but it's drunkenness that is forbidden. Now, Proverbs chapter 23, uh, verses 29 through 35, gives a very sober warning by picturing the man who is enslaved by alcohol. And as I read this, uh, you, you may recognize that description in somebody you know. Or maybe at one time uh, describe you. Or, or maybe there's somebody out there who you're thinking, this describes me right now. Uh, Solomon writes this in Proverbs, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. 
Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. That's sad. And that sad story of, of alcohol abuse has been played out over and over and over again in the lives of countless people, including my own father. As I witness with my own eyes the devastation that this sin causes as my dad became enslaved to it and destroyed his family. Because to give yourself over to alcohol never ultimately delivers what it promises. It does not build up. It destroys. And so, Paul now, as usual, never tells us to put off a way of life without telling us to put on something that replaces it. And so he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So that's my, my second observation, uh, is, is what to do. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, one thing that we need to realize is that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. Uh, all believers are indwelt by the Spirit. The uh, Bible makes this very clear, Romans chapter 8. If you, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not even a Christian. Uh, in fact, before Paul tells these Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5, he actually says to them back in, in, in Ephesians 1 that when you heard the gospel and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, the Ephesians have already received the Spirit when they first believed, and yet on the other hand, in chapter 5, Paul tells them to be filled with the Spirit. I, I think the best way to understand this is to, is to think about the comparison that Paul makes in verse 18. He says, don't be drunk with wine. When you give yourself over to wine, what happens? You lose control. You do things you normally wouldn't do. You're, you're under the influence or control of alcohol in the sense that it is dominating everything that you do. When you give yourself over to wine, it produces certain results. Namely, Paul says in verse 18, debauchery. And so, as a contrast, Paul says now, be filled with the Spirit. And that simply means give yourself over to the Spirit. Be influenced by the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. Don't resist the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit, as Paul said in chapter 4. Uh, walk in step with the Spirit, as Paul writes elsewhere. Uh, let, the, let the Spirit dominate everything you do, and just like when you give yourself over to wine, uh, it produces certain results in your life, so when you, when you yield yourself over to the control of the Spirit, it produces certain results in your life. Uh, there are interesting comparisons between what wine does and what the Spirit does, and wine falls short every time. Uh, while, while people will uh, get drunk to try to reach a state of joy and peace, and it never truly works, because it's a counterfeit, we know through Galatians 5.22 that through the Spirit you can actually get the real thing because uh, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is joy and peace. Uh, people who get drunk are trying to find a sense of satisfaction in their soul and they wind up emptier. It never works. But Jesus says in John chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, John writes, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So in John 7, the ministry of the Spirit is seen as thirst-quenching water that's so abundant that rivers flow from his heart, uh, the, the person's heart, and as, as if the water is more than he needs, so it's just coming out uh, to be shared with others. Uh, people get drunk and they lose control. Galatians 5.23 says the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Which is why I completely dismiss all of the over-the-top, crazy, completely out-of-control behavior that's happening in many churches today, and yet it's attributed to the Holy Spirit. What goes on in some churches has more in common with Bacchus worship. Uh, folks trying to whip themselves up into an altered state of consciousness through a static speech and music and other disorderly, frenzied activity, and they're just losing control. What we find from verse 19 through the first part of chapter 6 is the true picture of what a spirit-filled church looks like. It looks like addressing one another in song and thanksgiving and mutual submission in the church and loving, self-giving, Christ-centered relationships in every home. That's what a spirit-filled church looks like. Now, 
I know that, that some of you who are practically minded people out there, you're thinking, that all sounds great. And I want that. I want to be spirit-filled. I want to live a godlier, holy life. But, but how, how, how does that happen? How do I experience the filling of the Holy Spirit? And Paul doesn't tell you. <laughs> Not here, at least. Uh, but, I, but I do think we can uh, get an important clue in, in Colossians chapter 3. And it might help you if you turn there with me right now. Colossians chapter 3. It's just a couple of books over uh, from, uh, from the book of Ephesians. Uh, and, and as you're turning there, I, I will say, by the way, I, I think it's completely fine and legitimate to, uh, uh, to pray that the Holy Spirit would, would fill you. Um, uh, it, Jesus says, uh, you know, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, to those who, who ask? That, that's perfectly legitimate. But, but I, I think there is a, another piece of the puzzle that I think is absolutely essential, and if we remove this piece of the puzzle, we will not experience the filling of the Holy Spirit. Um, Ephesians and Colossians are, um, are sister books, so it's handy to study these together. They have lots of the same themes, but sometimes they're expressed in slightly different ways, and so one book can really help to explain or shed light on what Paul is saying in the other book, and, and what I'm about to show you is a great example of that. And... Colossians chapter 3, um, Paul's been talking about living the Christian life, as he has been in Ephesians. He's been talking about putting on and putting off, as he has been in Ephesians. And then you get down to verse 16, and look what Paul writes. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then if you keep going in Colossians 3, you keep looking down, lo and behold, what does Paul talk about next? Loving, self-giving, Christ-centered relationships in the home. Same thing as he does in Ephesians. Same pattern. But there's one significant difference. And I wonder if you caught it. In Ephesians 5, the catalyst for this kind of activity in the church is what? what what's the catalyst for the for the spirit-filled spirit-filled living in the church the catalyst is be filled with the spirit <laughs> when you're filled with the spirit paul says in ephesians 5 this is what you can expect to happen in the life of the church but in colossians 3 what's the catalyst he doesn't say be filled with the spirit and these things will happen what does he say he says let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see the point? In Ephesians, being filled with the Spirit produces these kind of, kinds of results in the church. In Colossians, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly produces the exact same results. And what that's telling me is that these two things go hand in hand. Spirit filling and letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let me explain it this way. The way to position yourself to be influenced by, controlled by, dominated by the Spirit to the point where you could be described as being Spirit-filled, the, the, the way to, to let yourself be filled with the Spirit is to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Which means that you will never be a Spirit-filled Christian if you are neglecting the Word of Christ that is found in this book, in the scriptures, which is very ironic because many so-called spirit-filled churches that are experiencing all kinds of crazy, bizarre activity that's being attributed to the spirit are the same churches that are getting farther and farther and farther away from the word to the point where they act, some of them act like they don't even need this word anymore. They are more interested in supposedly supernatural audio-visual mystical experiences and displays than they are in having a Bible study. And that's a problem. If, if you really want to be spirit-filled, forget all of the sensationalistic, exciting stuff and do something really radical and read the book of Leviticus and Isaiah and the Gospel of John, and Ephesians, and everything else in this book. Because 
in harmonizing Ephesians 5 with Colossians 3, what we see is that the Holy Spirit works powerfully filling the lives of believers who are filling themselves with the word that he inspired and the word that he wrote. And of course, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly isn't just kind of mechanically reading the word, closing your Bible, and immediately forgetting what you read. And a lot of us do that, and, and I've done it too. If that's happening, the word isn't dwelling in you richly. Instead, we are called to be like the man in Psalm 1 who is walking in righteousness, and, and, and it says that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Uh, and to meditate on God's word means to ponder it, to think about it, to turn it, turn it over in your mind, to, to fill up and saturate your thoughts in it. Uh, as you're thinking about how it, what it means for your life and how it applies for your life, and you're doing this to the point that it transforms your very heart. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Because, because whatever is in your heart, whatever is dominating your heart, comes out and dominates and influences your life. And so if, you are, if your heart is being dominated by, by the, the Holy Spirit-inspired words of Scripture, then the Spirit is going to dominate you and influence you. And you'll be filled with the Spirit, or you'll be walking with the Spirit, or keeping in step with the Spirit. There's, just, there's a lot of metaphors and, and language that Paul uses to, to describe the same kind of phenomena. In John chapter 15, the Lord, the Lord Jesus compares himself to a vine, and he compares us to branches. And as a branch must be connected to the life-giving vine to produce fruit, so Jesus says, abide in me. And, and in that chapter, he equates that with letting his word abide in us. That's how he puts it in John 15, 7. Uh, as, as, uh, <clears throat> he says, uh, uh, he talks about my word abiding in you. And that, that sounds a lot like Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. And Jesus says, if we do this, we will bear much fruit. For apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. Now, if it is true that apart from him, we can do nothing, that means that the opposite is true. That as we abide in him and his words abide in us, that word dwelling in us richly, we can do anything that he calls us to do. And we will bear much fruit and glorify him. So going back to Ephesians 5, Paul now begins to give us a little glimpse of what to expect from a spirit-filled church. So, we, so we've talked about what not to do. Don't be drunk with wine. Uh, what to do, be filled with the spirits. And now we move to the results of doing what you're supposed to do. And the results are simply a beautiful life and a beautiful church. Uh, Paul describes this beautiful spirit-filled life from starting at verse 19 all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. But today we're only going to have time to consider the next few verses. So let's think about verse 19. Paul says, that the spirit-filled church is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The very first manifestation of the spirit in the life of, of the church that Paul directs our attention to is singing. Now, if it is true that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, surely out of the abundance of the heart the mouth sings. And Christians have always uh, been known for being a singing people and singing songs that are different than what the world sings about. And... Um, in A.D. 112, this is early, early church, just shortly after the Bible was <clears throat> complete. A.D. 112, the Roman governor Pliny, in a letter to Emperor Trajan, writes about how Christians in his province had the custom of meeting on a fixed day before dawn. I wonder what day that was. <laughs> a fixed day before dawn and reciting a hymn to Christ as God. There is something about music and singing that is a powerful expression uh, of, of what you are celebrating and the things that are important to you. It's why during my radio career, um, and some, some of you may not know this, some of you don't know me well, in, in another life I was, a, I was a radio guy, almost 20 years actually, and, and, but eventually in my radio career I had to get out of secular radio. I was working for um, a pop station, and the lyrics of the music that it played were just getting worse and worse, 
was glorifying all kinds of immorality, and I just felt like I couldn't be a part of that anymore. My heart wasn't in it because my heart was somewhere else. And, and everything that, that, the, that those songs were celebrating was 180 degrees different from my life as a Christian. But notice here in Ephesians 5 that the singing and the music that Paul is describing is not just a personal thing. We are so individualistic about our music, right? We buy music that's catered for our taste, uh, our styles. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Pandora. I know some of you are Spotify people out there, but I like Pandora because I don't have to think about it much. But, but it, you know, you make these stations and, and, it, and it shapes the station kind of based on, on your interest, on, on what is preferable to you. Um, and often Christians take that consumeristic attitude into the church about the songs we sing. And, and, and y'all, we can get very selfish in the church in regards to music. Well, I don't like that style of music, so I just won't sing. I'll just, I'll just wait until they play a song that I like that'll get me jazzed up and excited to worship. That attitude has more in common with the worship of Bacchus, <laughs> with, with, a, with a reliance on external factors to whip up my emotions before I can worship. But notice Paul says here that the church is to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. One of the main purposes in singing and corporate worship is not to make you feel good. It's not to give you a good time because your favorite tunes are being played. If that's what you want, listen to Pandora when the church is not meeting. Instead, one of the main purposes when we come together and sing is to bless other people in the congregation with your singing because coming to church isn't just about you. It's about all the others that are there with you. And by the way, this has nothing to do with the quality of your singing. If you can't, if you can't sing, you're not off, off the hook here. It doesn't have anything to do with the quality of your singing. It has everything to do with the content of the songs that you're singing. I know that because the parallel passage in Colossians 3 describes our singing as teaching and admonishing one another. In other words, um, uh, as you are singing, you are commending the truth about God to your brothers and sisters who need it. This is a teaching ministry. And, and, so, and so that person who is standing near you during the worship service, Yes, next week it'll be six feet apart, but still, that person who is standing near you during the worship service, who has come off of a hard week of trials and spiritual attack, weighed down and burdened by the enemy, that discouraged brother near you needs to hear you singing lyrics like, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That sister near you in corporate worship, who's going through the most difficult trial of her life, needs to be reminded of God's faithfulness as she hears you sing, it is well, it is well, through the storm I am held, it is well with my soul, it is well, it is well, God has won, Christ prevailed, it is well with my soul. And that's why we are very selective at Harbin's in regards to what songs we sing. Because music in, in church isn't just about a personal feel-good session which is how often people uh, judge a church's worship. You hear it all the time. Someone visits a church, man, the worship was, was good there. What do they mean by that? Well, a lot of times what they mean is, is that the music was really great and I liked it. And, and, and so we need to define what good, redefine what good worship is. Now, now, of course, none of this means that we can't enjoy music or that emotions can't be stirred as we as we sing and, and folks as as Harbin's church uh, uh, comes together uh, as a family to sing I, I want our emotions uh, to be stirred and and, and engaged I, I believe that glorifies and pleases God it's it's not that Bacchus worshipers are emotional and Jesus's worshipers are not but here's the difference let our emotions be stirred by the right reasons not by alcohol or sinful pleasures or, or sinful thoughts, but by the truth, the truth that we sing. That's the horizontal dimension of worship through song. 
Uh, but of course, there is a vertical dimension too. Uh, as the end of verse 19, Paul, Paul talks about making melody to the Lord with your heart. We're, we're not just um, to mechanically recite lyrics, but to really mean what we're singing. And so you're singing to God, giving him glory, and you're singing to and for one another, directing your brothers and sisters to God. That's part of the spirit-filled life. Paul also describes an evidence of spirit-filling as thankfulness. Look with me at verse 20. He writes, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul says giving thanks for everything, it doesn't mean thanking God for evil. I thank God that the diagnosis is terminal cancer. It's not, it's not what Paul means. That's ridiculous. Instead, the spirit-filled Christian can always find reasons for thanking and praising Jesus in all of life. In, in every area of life, no matter what is going on, because no matter what's going on, Jesus still reigns, Jesus still loves me, Jesus has still saved me, Jesus is still for me and not against me, Jesus is still with me, Jesus is still working all things together for my benefit, even weaving the bad things that happen to me into his great plan for me, for my good. In those truths, I can be thankful. That's the, that's the attitude of the Spirit-filled Christian. Grumbling and complaining is not being spirit-filled. And there are a lot of Christians right now that are being tested on that point during COVID-19, right? And I'm not saying that Christians can't have legitimate concerns about the fallout of COVID-19 or anything like that. What I'm saying is, is that Christians, in our society, Christians ought not to be known as the grumblers and complainers during COVID. Uh, but instead, we should be distinguished from the world by doing something otherworldly, which is exuding thanksgiving in all things. But, but, but sometimes, sadly, some of the most thankless and grumpiest people are Christians. And folks, I get it. There are lots of reasons we can find to just grumble and complain and be grumpy all day long. That's how the world is responding to current events. That's, not the, that, that's the natural way to respond. But we as the church are not to respond naturally. We're to respond supernaturally in a way that makes God's temple, the church, stand out like a beacon in a dark world, uh, just as God's activity in the temple in Israel in the Old Testament was a sign to the surrounding nations that God was there, God was in their midst. And, and the Apostle Paul really lived this out, didn't he? He practiced what he preached. You, you can maybe recall Acts uh, 16. Uh, he and Silas were persecuted, and they were beaten and thrown in jail, and their feet fastened in stocks. Pretty bad day. And I don't know about you, but I would have been pretty ticked off. And many of us would have been grumbling and complaining and angry about how unfair this was and cussing out the guards. And yet in Acts 16.25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're praying. And you know those prayers would have included thanksgiving. And they're singing hymns, which surely included words of praise and gratitude to God for salvation. And you've got to believe their prayers and their praise were full of Scripture because they let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. I mean, this whole scene here in Acts sounds like Ephesians 5. This response to their persecution was totally spirit-filled. And the text goes on to say that as they're doing this, the prisoners were listening to them. You see, being spirit-filled is not just for our sakes. It's a witness to the world about God. And if you finish the story in Acts 16, uh, the, um, uh, uh, the God sends an earthquake and opens up the prison doors, and the, and, and the jailer asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas's spirit-filled praise and thanksgiving paved the way for evangelism. If you are a constant grumbler and complainer, you are not spirit-filled, you will compromise your witness and subvert evangelistic opportunities, and so, my friend, I would challenge you to repent of that and begin to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And as it does, as it gets more and more into your heart, you will more and more have your mind and heart saturated with the wonders and the glories and the works of God, and you will find more and more things to be thankful for. Finally, Paul gives us one more manifestation of the Spirit-filled church. He says in verse 21, 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, <clears throat> this is something that is radically supernatural and countercultural. Again, many of us bring a very American consumeristic kind of spirit into the church. I want these kinds of programs. I want this kind of music. I want people to be this way, preferably like me. And, and the preacher needs to be as good as my favorite podcast preacher. Good luck with that if you go to Harvin's Church. And I, I want my personal definition of what community is to be fulfilled. And, and I want the kind of ministries that I think are important. Uh, those should be happening. And, and if none of all those things are happening, I'm just going to go check out the church down the road. We often come to church with the idea of being served. Because as sinners, uh, we don't naturally like to serve or submit to anybody. Uh, we want our needs met. That, that, that's the first thing we think about. Uh, we don't like to set aside our preferences for the sake of others. Well, why, why should I have to give up that? Uh, instead, though, we expect uh, uh, other people to submit to us and bend to our way of doing things. And here, Paul is casting an amazing, beautiful vision of a church full of members that are denying themselves, setting aside their preferences, their comforts, their desires for the good and well-being and interest of others. Because the Christian life is not about being served. It's about being a servant. Paul says, submitting to one another. Everyone is to have this attitude in the church. Now, this does not mean that God has obliterated authority structures and made them obsolete. In fact, we're going to see uh, next week as we push on in Ephesians 5, uh, the authority of husbands in the home and, and the authority of parents over their kids and masters over their servants. He doesn't obliterate authority structures. But on the other hand, as we're going to see, even those in authority are not exempt from having a servant attitude and a servant heart. As John Calvin writes in his Ephesians commentary, God has so bound us to each other that no man ought to avoid subjection. And where love reigns, there is mutual servitude. I do not accept even kings and governors, Calvin writes, for they rule that they may serve. Therefore, it is very right that we should exhort all to be subject to one another. Calvin is brilliant. I wish I could write like him. But Paul is calling Harbin's church to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what he's telling the members of this church to do. And in bringing Christ into the picture, Paul reminds us that the basis of our submission is the one who led the way in being a servant. Folks, Jesus calls you and he calls me to do for one another no more than what he himself has already done for us. Jesus Christ, whom the Gospel of Luke describes as one who is full of the Holy Spirit, indeed the one whom John 3.34 says has been given the Spirit without measure, this same Spirit-filled Jesus, Paul holds up to us as the chief example of humble service, as he writes to us in Philippians 2 that we should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul writes, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, though being innocent, served us who were guilty through taking our sins upon himself on the cross. He humbly submitted to God the Father who poured out his wrath meant for us on Jesus, who paid the price for sin so that all who believe in him may not perish in hell but have eternal life. And, and in light of that, Paul then turns to you, Harbin's church, and he says, go and do likewise. Serve others. Give all for others. Die to yourself. Set aside your own comforts for others so that they may be blessed. Friends, a spirit-filled church is not what some people think it is. It's not filled with over-the-top sensationalistic weird phenomena. At least not the kind of weird phenomena most people think of. Instead, a spirit-filled church is a, is a congregation that is singing, not in a self-centered, all-about-me kind of way, 
but in a way that seeks the best for his neighbor, encouraging and instructing the brothers and sisters in the truths of God while, while praising God from the heart. As a congregation that is repenting of grumbling and complaining and is now dominated by thanksgiving. And as a congregation that is submitting to one another, setting aside individual personal preferences and agendas and comforts for the sake of blessing their fellow church member, not seeking to be served, but, but to serve, just like Jesus did. And when we think about a community like that, we realize that that actually is way more powerful and way more supernatural and way more sensational than somebody collapsing on the floor or hysterically laughing. And I would say the spirit-filled church that Paul describes here is actually stranger than those other things because the worshipful, other-centered, God-centered, submission-filled church is alien compared to what's seen in the world and, sadly, seen in many churches today. Indeed, what Paul is describing is so unusual and so powerful that when those on the outside see the kind of community that we have on the inside, they will be able to rightly say, God is there. God is with these people. May we, as God's temple, be filled with his spirit and with his glory, demonstrating that kind of beautiful community when, God willing, we begin to return together corporately starting next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy and inspired word. We pray that Harbin's church would be filled to the brim and overflowing with the Holy Spirit. That the manifest glory and presence of God would be seen in this church in mighty and powerful ways. May the, the winds of the Spirit blow in our church to the point that we, we are just radically uh, loving one another, radically setting aside our own preferences and comforts for the sake of others, radically dying to self because we're considering our fellow church members as more important than we are. Oh, Father, give us a, a, a Holy Spirit revitalization in this church. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Spirit, a gift that we do not deserve, but we gladly receive it, and we look forward to seeing what the Holy Spirit will do in Harbin's Community Baptist Church as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in the days ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.